Hi, everyone, and welcome to another exciting edition of Words, Images, and Worlds. Absolutely, waving back. Um, glad to be talking with author Bridget Hodder on this episode. I, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly. You are. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, so folks out there will probably know you for The Rat Prince being one of your uh books the button box and recently or upcoming the promise please remind me is that recent or is it that just upcoming? came out okay last week september 5th 2023 so i'm Fantastic. super psyched thanks for uh thanks for bringing it up yeah and an absolutely beautiful picture book that um celebrates a variety of uh backgrounds identities we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through and you can share what you'd like about it as well. Um, so curious by way of a first question, how it was that you happened upon this world of sort of authoring and sharing stories for young people? Well, it was a journey, um, Jason. And I think that when you speak to most authors, they will probably say that they've had stories running through their heads in some form or another ever since they were children. And such is the truth for me. Um, and I think that a lot of writers start out as readers. So I was voracious with reading when I was a kid. And, you know, we, we hear a lot about Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's, um, metaphors about books being mirrors, windows and doors for children. Well, I'm personally of the opinion that you can add other things to that. And I would add escape hatches. <laughs> because when I was a kid, I read to escape like fiercely. I absolutely preferred the world's inside books to the world that I lived in. And it's not that my world was such a terrible world. It's just that, you know, you can't fly um, without a plane in this world and you can't do all kinds of fabulous magic and blue flames do not spit out from the palms of your hands. So you know, this is this is something that I deeply sympathize with um, when I meet kids on my various appearances is that, you know, as authors, we have this special privilege to be able to create, literally create worlds where kids will move around and um, have experiences that feel super real to them. So I think that's a, that's a, a privilege. It's a responsibility as well to do the best job we can with it. Um, it's also probably why I was terrible in math because during math class, I would make up stories like you would not believe. I was always the heroic person in the middle of the story where, you know, the math teacher would be going on and I would be thinking, what if, some guys dangling from a rope from a helicopter suddenly crashed through the windows and made unspecified political demands. Um, what would the teacher do? Well, not much. It was all going to be me saving the world. Uh, but I think that's the way kids are, right? Uh, it, it's And knowing that, I, I absolutely love being able to do that for them. Um, and so back to your, your question, which had a direction to it, which is that um, I wanted to be an English major in college, but I didn't do that because like a lot of kids, my parents, but my dad mostly, who is a physicist, was like, nope, you are not majoring in English. So the closest I could get to that was history, 
while still pleasing my father or semi-pleasing him. Um, without math, you can't do much science. Uh, so that did, but that, that didn't last that long. So once I completed my formal education, I could not lose the creativity fever that I always carried inside of me. And um, this is, this is not a, um, a podcast or a YouTube that's specifically uh, related to children. So I'll just make kind of a, I will draw a simile with when you're, you're doing one thing for your job, but what you really want to be doing is something creative, like writing or painting or whatever it, your art is. Um, it's a little bit like what I imagine having like a secret affair is, is gotta be like where it's, you yearn for it. When you have any spare time, you find yourself, you know, drawn to it. And in the end you succumb to it and because it's a passion and that's what I did. So later on in life, I came back to that and I wrote The Rat Prince, my first book. And I confess that I felt somewhat vindicated vis-a-vis -vis my parents when it sold immediately to Macmillan, Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm like, yes, take that. But the fact is, and by that time, I was a parent myself. And I, I then understood why uh, parents might not want to be encouraging their kids to go into careers in the arts because they're worried about them supporting themselves. And as the writer's strike in Hollywood is demonstrating for a lot of folks who weren't aware of it before, right? Um, creators are often not given creative, um, they're not given the credit or the compensation for their creative uh, creations that they deserve that's appropriate. So um, I came to writing and that manifestation of my creativity later than maybe I would have, but it's all the sweeter for that. Lovely story. Absolutely. Uh, love how you found the creative, even, even in math class. And I did the, the same thing of thinking of stories and creating drawings and exploring in math. Um, so is it that what if question that really inspires you? What if does inspire me? Um, and, but in a particular way. So I, I have to start this with a disclaimer, which is that um, everybody who knows me will back me up. I'm a nice person. Um, I'm gentle. I'm fun loving. I adore kids. I love babies. Uh, seven months is my favorite human age. Um, small, fluffy pets. I'm big on those. So it may seem a little strange when I tell you that getting mad and wanting to change things is a huge inspiration for me. And I think a lot of us, if we're honest, right, we might recognize well, what is the theme that unites all of the like big things I've done in my life? Well, I got sick of something or I got frustrated with it. And then I decided I can do this myself or I can improve on that or I can do it better or I can change it. So for my first book, The Rat Prince, The Getting Mad Trigger, I had to do with, well, it was very specific. I watched 
the then latest version on film of the Cinderella story. Um, it was an expensive and lavish production of Cinderella, and I won't name the company that made it, but I will tell what I will tell you is I stumbled out of that theater so angry. I was stunned. I was so outraged that, in fact, the latest 21st century version of Cinderella was more oppressive um, than I remembered the Disney 1950s version being. And it was all about, you know, being passive and be nice, let people walk all over you and you shall have your magical reward from a fairy godmother. And it's like, no, you won't. That's super toxic. So I was mad and and I remember thinking, gosh, I, I, I know a million ways that I could turn the Cinderella story upside down and inside out and make it fresh and new and exciting and make it fair for everybody. Because when you look at that story, it's not just unfair for Cinderella that the only way out of poverty and abuse is to marry some rando prince guy, but it's also not fair for the prince that he has to marry some rando woman that he picks out at a ball. Like none of this makes any sense. That's where the rat prince came from, which had the um, one of the rats that gets turned into a coachman on the night of the ball by the fairy godmother happens to be the prince of the rats. And he's in love with Cinderella. So when he gets turned into a man, he's got his chance and boy, is he not gonna let it go. Um, so he teams up with her and there is a complete overturning of the whole Cinderella trope, but it doesn't cheat by putting it in the present day. My challenge to myself was I can do this without making this take place in a speakeasy in the twenties or, <laughs> you know, or in a high school in Seoul, Korea in, in the present day. So that was the rat prince. And then the version of getting mad and or frustrated and, and writing for The Button Box, which was my last book, which was co-authored with Fazia Jelani Williams. Shout out to her, my wonderful co-author. That was because I am a Sephardic Jew. And it's really because I got frustrated with the fact that every time I say I'm a Sephardic Jew, the response, even from Jews, is, what's a Sephardic Jew? <laughs> or they pretend that they know what it is, which is even more awkward. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's so cool. That's great. And it's like, yeah, what's a Sephardic Jew? I feel like doing a pop quiz. I mean, it's not their fault, right? We're a tiny minority within a very small minority, which is Jews in the world and in this country. Um, so... When I learned that publishing, in fact, considers most Jewish content, um, and I'm not saying Jewish authors, but stories that are Jewish or contain a lot of Jewishness uh, to be niche stories, uh, that got me kind of, that was it. That was the thing. I'm like, well, Sephardic stories, even though they're more niche than niche, <laughs> uh, they they deserve to be told. And so, and the fact is that the Sephardim were descended from 
the Jews were directly descended from the Jews who had to flee Spain during the Inquisition. Um, and so the uh, the Catholic King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, they were the ones who had the edict of expulsion for Jews and Muslims once they conquered Iberia. Um, and that was because the Jews had been living under Muslim rule for many centuries there. And so we have a lot of Muslim and Arab uh, customs, foods, even part of our, our Ladino language has some Arabic in it. And um, so the button box is a time travel tale that takes two kids back in time using a magic button from their Sephardic granny's button box that um, takes them smack into the middle of this moment when Muslims and Jews created a new society in Spain back um, many, many years ago. So I needed my co-author Fazia, who is Muslim. She lives in the United Arab Emirates and is an educator and a peace activist there uh, to write that story authentically to include a Muslim character uh, who there are two main characters. One's a girl who's Jewish and one's a boy who's her Muslim cousin. And the co-authorship was a lovely way of incorporating all of that in an own voices, authentic manner. So um, that's what happened with the button box. Now the promise was different. It was and I'll say again, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful Thank book. Mm -hmm. And we I have to give Chinzia Batisel, our uh illustrator, a super uplift for the work that she did. What beautiful illustrations. I know Fozzie and I both felt like um she had cracked open our heads and hearts and seen the, the vision. And I, I got tears in my eyes when the first sketches came from the publisher of those illustrations because Chinzia nailed it. It was fabulous. So that was, um, we we wrote The Promise. It was inspired when Fazia found in, I believe it was an Emirati newspaper, an article about two Moroccan boys, one Jewish, one Muslim, who were broken apart because of World War II and the aftermath of the World War. And, um, how uh, the Muslim friend who remained behind faithfully tended the graveyards, the graveyard of the family of the, the Jewish best friend who left. Um, now, the whole, the book began to truly take shape and really resonate once we realized that we needed to change the graveyard into a garden. Um, which preserved the original spirit, at, but made it kid-friendly and also much easier for our illustrator to interpret the metaphor of the garden, which I'll I'll talk about a little later, probably. I know you would want to ask me something about um, thematic things, so I'm happy to go into that. Yeah, by all means. I, I was going to ask about, I think it was something like what you hope readers take away or 
what the ideas are that you really want to explore in your work. Yeah, so uh, thanks for asking that. I'm always, I mean, the thing is, you have to stop me. And once you get me started on these things that are so near to my heart, I will just keep going. Um, so yeah, basically in The Promise, which is the current picture book, um, I think it's best to give a little background on the book before I explain how the themes worked in that and how you can find some of those themes in my own work in other areas. So um, it is about two best friends who grew up in a small village in Morocco in the shadow of World War II. Now, Jacob is a Sephardic Jew and his best friend Hassan is Muslim and their families are also best friends. And together, they decide that they're going to take over the care of a beautiful Spanish garden that's in Jacob's backyard. Um, and as Jacob's father says, a garden is a prayer. And as Hassan's father says, a garden is a promise and a promise must be kept. So we have this metaphor of a garden as a promise, the garden is a place where things grow. A garden is a place where kids can grow, where friendships can grow, and love of all kinds can grow. Now, because Morocco, at the time of the telling of this tale and of the original story, was French, ruled by the French, I don't know the technical term, whether it was a territory or a protectorate or what. So when the Nazis took over France, there was a push to enforce anti-Semitic laws in Morocco. And um, so Jacob's family in The Promise, of course, feels unsafe and they feel that they have to flee. So Hassan's family helps them pack their little cart and uh, they're getting ready to go away. And of course, the two best friends are crying and they're they're devastated. They They worry they'll never see each other again. And so... As Jacob is leaving, he says to Hassan, the garden, take care of the garden for us and for us both. And Hassan says, a garden is a promise. The promise must be kept. And he does. So the book takes us through. Um, and Chinzia does a wonderful illustrative job of making it happen visually from of the years passing, decades pass, and Hassan faithfully takes care of the empty garden, keeps it growing, keeps painting the benches on the fountain blue. Uh, he gets married. He tends his flocks in the fields. He grows old. And in the last part of the book, we find out the answer to, does Jacob ever come back to the garden? But we know that Hassan knows how to keep a promise. And this kind of idea that um, it the garden as a metaphor for their friendship and for love in general, it's about that careful, faithful work, the dedication through years, that things don't bloom and grow by accident. They don't bloom and grow if you don't do the work if you neglect them, if you don't show love, 
you won't get that love. Um, and time, patience, and faith are things that both Fazia and I feel are not, they aren't centered enough in the way we talk, not just to children, but about the things that we want to change in our lives and in our society and in our world. That you can't just raise awareness and then walk away. And obviously, if we're writing books about Muslims and Jews and friendships, we also care very much about um, kids getting to know, sometimes they're very first Muslims and Jews in the pages of our books, and to loving and caring about those characters, and to seeing how those characters love and care for each other. It's only by teaching and this is subconsciously through a good story, teaching that that uh, you have to be faithful and you have to put in the work to get the results um, that you want to see in the world. That's a message that's really important to me and to us. Love it. Love it. And um, so with the new book, I know that you probably have some events and uh, maybe even something else in progress that you'd like to talk about. So just want to provide the space for that and places where readers can connect with you. Thanks. So yeah, I just finished an event. I'm actually in Nashville right now. I'm in a hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. And I just did an event at Parnassus Books. So there, if you all want a signed copy of The Promise, uh, order it through Parnassus and support their independent bookstore wonderfulness. Um, I also will be doing, um, I'll be doing several story times, but I'm going to give a shout out to Brookline Booksmith in Brookline, Massachusetts, where I'll be doing a story hour on October 8th. And I'll also have as a guest that evening, the author of the Fenway Hattie series, my dear friend, Victoria Coe, who's a kidlit author. In November, I'm doing a panel uh, at NCTE, the National Council for Teachers of English. I'm also going to be doing an appearance in November at Books by the Banks in Cincinnati. So I look forward to seeing those of you uh, who are from Ohio there. And um, I'm coming to Seattle to do a whole bunch of appearances in December. I don't have the exact dates, but I'll be posting those on my website. So um as far as where to find me online, uh, I've really been dwindling at Twitter ever since it became X. Um, as have we all, or at I, least many of us. I know I have. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. And with the um, information that they just sent to all people who are on that platform that, did you get this message that all everything that you tweet starting September or whatever, will become the sole property of Twitter that they can modify, change, use in any context um, without telling you or getting your approval. I, I have not seen that. That's uh... It's not a rumor. <laughs> it's an actual thing. Like they sent it. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, I think that's the end because I don't want my mm -hmm. image I'm a children's book author. I think that's wrong for anybody yeah, yeah, to have to agree to that. But as a children's book author, I'm very cognizant of the harm that can be done if my work and my image is used in ways that can be harmful 
you know, we, we all know what that might be and we'd rather not think about it. So find me on Facebook for now. And I, I've got a placeholder on threads to see if that becomes a, another place to find me, but my website, my Facebook page, Bridget Hodder or Bridget Hodder author, you can follow me there. And, um, I do have some happy publishing news, but it is, I've been told I can't share it yet. The announcement needs to come out. So uh, follow me and I will, I will post my events and I will post my happy publishing announcements on my website. And you mentioned like new creative next steps. And this has not risen to the level of a creative next step, but I know you personally, Jason, uh, are interested in the graphic novel and comic illustration format. I love reading what you put out um, with interviews and explorations of authors and illustrators who do that kind of work. Well, thank so, you. Thank you so yeah, much. Well, thank yeah. you for what you do. And so I thought I would kind of put it out there with you. Mm-hmm. That I am the thing I'm super intrigued about right now is the global webtoons platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um it's a phenom that I think US publishing just has yet to understand or catch up on. Mm-hmm. And I'm investigating the genre, I'm investigating the process of how to translate a novel or a story into a webtoon. And to get them rendered as, you know, the scrolling comic book art style mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is brilliant, brilliant work out there. Um, and the idea that um, fantasy, romance, um, let's see, action, even horror, these are all genres, other genre fiction on the webtoons and related platforms get on the regular get audiences and readerships of several million is to me something that we should all be paying attention to. I hear a lot of people bemoaning that kids are not reading anymore. But I honestly, I look at Webtoon, I can look at, you know, Naver, the Korean version of that and and um, other online scrolling format reading illustrated reading sites and i'm like the numbers are saying that you're wrong they are reading they're just not reading in the ways maybe that we're measuring or that we're used to Amen. Uh-huh. counting <laughs> as reading right i mean i go into to children's bookstores a lot obviously and whenever i hear a parent telling a child who's saying i want this graphic novel please buy this for me And the parent says, you know, that's not really reading. I want you to get a real book. I have become that person who sort of sidles up and says, well, actually, (laughs) you know, consider it as a real book. And then like, it's just like, it's probably a terrible thing for me to do. But I just, I want to defend the actual fact that literacy manifests in different ways. And um, I'm a big fan of um, the folks who say that reading is reading and we should let children during their free reading periods pick their own stuff. 
you know, Donalyn Miller is a big, big champion in that. And I'm a big champion of Donalyn Miller and the people she works with. Um, so those are, I think that webtoons, I think that when we publish uh, children's books, um, someday it will be as automatic to have a webtoons version of that book as it currently is to have it uh, go into an audible version. I dream of that day. And um, yeah, I'm I'm thinking about the Rat Prince as a perfect crossover for Webtoons. So that is in answer to your what kind of new creative frontiers are you looking at right now? I'm looking at that one. And um, I hope a lot more people start looking at it too. Wonderful. Well, well, thank you so much, Bridget. And thank you for talking with me in the midst of traveling. Did we miss anything that you want to make sure to share as we're um, closing out? No, just thank you for having me. Thanks to everyone who's listening or watching. And I hope to see you in person when I visit your city, either for this book or the next. All right. Well, well, thank you so much again. And glad to talk to you about Webtoons or anything, anytime. Fabulous. Thanks, Jason. Thank you.